Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Former President Donald Trump lost a critical court battle to keep legal details secret from the special counsel investigating his alleged mishandling of classified information and obstruction of justice. It was a double loss for Trump as a federal appeals court ordered his attorney, Evan Corcoran, to return to the grand jury to answer questions he had said were protected by the attorney-client privilege and also to turn over materials he prepared during his representation of Trump. Federal prosecutors had convinced the judge overseeing the grand jury that the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege and the attorney work product doctrine should apply in Corcoran's case. That exception kicks in when the government can present evidence that a client may have used their lawyer to commit an ongoing or future crime. Joining me is Joshua Kastenberg, a professor at the University of New Mexico Law School who served as a prosecutor and judge in hundreds of trials in the U.S. Air Force. Joshua, tell us how the crime fraud exception works in piercing the attorney-client privilege. Of all the privileges that exist, the attorney-client privilege is the only one that's truly constitutional in nature. I mean, two of them predate the Constitution you know, the spouse privilege and and the clergy privilege. But the attorney-client privilege is sort of rooted in both the Fifth and Sixth Amendments. And you can go back to Elizabethan England, if not before, to find that privilege was in existence. So that's an important one. But there are exceptions. And one of the exceptions to the privilege is the crime-fraud exception. And it basically is what is at play here. A defendant or an individual who is seeking legal help can do one of two things that will erode the attorney-client privilege. One is involve the attorney in the crime. Whether the attorney knows she or he is being involved in the crime or not is irrelevant. And so like a classic example, old mafia kind of way is to um, use your attorney as an alibi. Say, well, I was meeting with my attorney when in fact you weren't, you know, and that alibi doesn't hold up. The other one is the the attorney knowingly being a part of the crime. And then there's a third category, which is if the attorney knows that a crime is about to occur, is in the process of occurring, he or he cannot be a part of that. And so those are the exceptions to the attorney-client privilege. My understanding is that the U.S. District Court judge who is overseeing the grand jury believes that Jack Smith you know, the special counsel who had provided a sealed set of of documents or or other information was indicating that Evan Corcoran could no longer be used as a protection for the attorney-client privilege because the crime fraud exception applied. We, We don't know exactly what's being alleged here. We do know that the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia in rapid fire succession upheld the U.S. District Court judge. I mean, usually the courts don't work that fast, but in this case, it did. 
How unusual is it to have a court pierce the attorney-client privilege because of the crime-fraud exception? It's very unusual. Normally, courts will err on the side of caution because of the importance of the attorney-client privilege. But in this case, I'm not saying they didn't err on the side of caution. There may have been overwhelming evidence presented before the U.S. District Court judge that made it crystal clear that Mr. Corcoran was being used in a manner so that the crime-fraud exception applied. And there's some visible evidence that you can kind of discern, and that is Mr. Trump often takes his cases public. And Mr. Trump did what I suspect many defendants or people are suspected of doing. They told their attorneys, look, I've handed over everything. And in point of fact, they have it and they know they have it. And so the attorneys sign off on that. And I think that's what's at play here is that the attorney signed off on documents in good faith, but that good faith was never justified. And it led to other avenues of investigation and you know, evidence of other criminal wrongdoing that the attorneys were unwittingly involved in. And I, I want to stress that there's no suggestion that I've seen that Mr. Corcoran is guilty of anything other than being used in a manner so that the, the crime fraud exception applies. Corcoran also has to turn over documents and materials he prepared during his representation of Trump, what's called work product. Is that even more unusual? to have work product turned over to the prosecution. Yeah, it's highly unusual. So, you know, if you think about a case called N. Ray Vince Foster, you may remember Vince Foster was one of Hillary Clinton's attorneys dating back to the Whitewater investigation. Vince Foster committed suicide, and the federal government argued that materials that he had prepared for future litigation were no longer protected by the work product privilege. And what the courts of appeal decided in the case is that the crime fraud exception is so important, it exists past the life of the attorney. So you think about if I'm an attorney, a criminal defense attorney, and I'm interviewing people and I write down on my notes, well, this witness is terrible for us. Uh, There's no way we're going to call this witness. Um, or my client lied to me, or something like that, that's supposed to be protected by the work product privilege. That's why that privilege is given heightened protection. So it's highly unusual that the work product privilege would be um, eroded by this crime fraud exception. And it may, at the end of the day, help Mr. Smith prove charges against Mr. Trump. Does it seem as if this could actually be the centerpiece of an obstruction case? Absolutely. It very well could be. You mentioned the speed at which the appellate court handled this. Why do you think they saw that need for speed? Well, um, a, a challenge to a government action is usually put to the front of the docket in this nature because there's a grand jury of citizens that's already been convened and the grand jury is already meeting. And, you know, you try to avoid delays you know, try to avoid an erosion of what's known as judicial economy, which is a, which is sort of a technical way of saying don't waste the citizens' time who are fulfilling their duty as grand jurors. But I think there's something more than that. And I think that there's a fear that Either the evidence will disappear or that there's some type of national security aspect or other law enforcement aspect that's going on, that if there was a danger of spillage to the public, would it affect other criminal investigations on either Mr. Trump or others? And so 
so that's probably why the appellate court acted with the speed that it did. But but again, that's just my guess. So if Trump did use one of his lawyers to further criminal activity in line with the crime fraud exception, does that indicate that there was obstruction? I think that that's a fair indication that obstruction occurred and that you know Jack Smith is likely to pursue that as as a criminal charge in the future. To me, it's it's telling. I mean, I I can't say that for a certainty, but it's really telling. Every time Trump loses in court, he always appeals. So is it surprising that he didn't appeal this? He could have appealed and asked for an on-bank panel of the D.C. Circuit. He could appeal to the Supreme Court. Is it surprising that he hasn't appealed at all? Yeah, (laughs) I am very surprised that he hasn't appealed at all. You're absolutely right. Almost every time he's confronted by litigation, you know, he seeks a higher review. And I'm surprised that he hasn't. Now, it's very difficult to get an en banc panel. But even the act of appealing for an en banc panel as a stepping stone to the Supreme Court can buy a defendant upwards of, you know, six months to a year. And um, I can't begin to guess why it is that he didn't do that. I want to, for a moment, go to the the New York investigation. And in that, we had an unusual situation where the Republican chairman of three House committees sent a letter to the Manhattan District Attorney, who's investigating Donald Trump, seeking information about his actions in the case. The Republicans criticized the grand jury investigation as an unprecedented abuse of prosecutorial authority, even though no indictment has been handed down. And the grand jury proceedings are secret, so they don't know what's been testified to. The general counsel for Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg wrote back, slamming the congressional request as an unlawful incursion into New York sovereignty. I've been talking to Joshua Katzenberg, a professor at the University of New Mexico Law School. So what's your take on this demand from the Republican chairman? This is a great issue to boil down. Congress certainly has the authority to investigate where federal dollars are spent, and federal dollars are spent everywhere in law enforcement. I have no doubt that the New York District Attorney relies somewhat on on federal dollars. However, there are limits to what the House and Senate can investigate, and those limits were established, some of them, during the Warren Court, because during the Red Scare, the House Un-American Activities Committee and the Senate Internal Security Committee would harass random citizens on the barest of evidence that they may have once spoken in favor of communism. And so a number of controls were set in that are supposed to prevent the House and Senate from harassing individuals. And in a manner of speaking, those controls would also protect a state law enforcement, legitimate law enforcement. On top of that, look, you know, Jim Jordan and, and others on the Judiciary Committee are lawyers. And they they know that a grand jury proceeding is secret, that grand jury proceedings can only become public on a judge's order, and that this is an end run on not only New York law, but on a legal principle that applies to all 50 states. There isn't a single state out there that permits their grand jury proceedings to become public on whim without judicial review. And so this is all political posturing on the part of the House, notwithstanding the fact that they don't even know exactly who's been called and the breadth and scope of this investigation. Now, it'll probably be 
settled by a U.S. district court judge who will quash that part of the indictment. On a broader issue, I would say that every day in the United States, there are thousands of grand juries and thousands of prosecutions and tens of thousands of criminal investigations. And for the House to set a precedent on looking into any of those simply because they have a favorite person who's being investigated will grind investigations into political corruption to a stop. So I don't think a U.S. District Court judge is going to side with the House because I think the Republicans in the House are politically posturing rather than actually advancing sound legal arguments. Having said that, you know, as I teach my students, we might think that Watergate and the corruption under the Nixon administration actually solved something. Maybe it did, but we will never know because the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, you can't find a single year where a member of Congress isn't being investigated or brought before a grand jury. The names of the WebTech scandal, Abscam, Koreagate, Randall Duke, Cunningham, Debit, you know, Duncan Hunter Jr., the list goes on and on, and there's probably an equal number of Democrats and Republicans who found themselves you know, investigated, prosecuted, and in some cases convicted and going to jail. And if the House has the authority to do what Jim Jordan thinks that they have the authority to do now, it will be very, very difficult for the U.S. attorney or state attorney generals to um, investigate and prosecute political corruption in the future. Thanks for being on the show. That's Professor Joshua Kastenberg of the University of Mexico Law School. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The Supreme Court justices appeared divided in its first case in the world of cryptocurrency, foreshadowing future cases that could help define the industry. But this case was really a procedural battle over arbitration. Coinbase Global wants to put two lawsuits on hold while it appeals a decision that denied it arbitration. During the argument, some justices, like Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Elena Kagan, indicated that Coinbase might be asking for too much. They gave you the most valuable rights you could have. You don't have to wait till the case is over. You can go up right away. So they were thinking about the problem you face when you lose on your arbitration claim and litigation is going, and this is what they gave you. Why isn't that enough? 
Now, if the district court or the um, appellate court thinks that, gosh, you guys have a really good claim and you're going to end up winning, I guess that this would be the appellate court, in the, in the appellate court, you can get a discretionary stay. But otherwise, you know, you've gotten a pretty valuable thing. You just haven't gotten the whole ball of wax. But other justices raised concerns about a lower court undermining the effect of an appellate court decision. Here's Justice Neil Gorsuch. Do you dispute that there is a one court at a time rule that is pretty ancient, goes back to the common law? I mean, how far that rule extends and whether it goes this far is a really good question. But do you dispute that principle that a lower court could essentially undermine appellate jurisdiction over an issue that the Court of Appeals has before it? Joining me is securities law expert Robert Heim, a partner at Tartar, Krinsky, and Drogan. This is the first time the Supreme Court is considering a case with cryptocurrency, but it really isn't about cryptocurrency, is it? It's not directly about cryptocurrency, even though this is really the first appearance that a cryptocurrency case is uh, making at the Supreme Court. What this case is about is whether or not Coinbase is entitled to a stay of some federal court litigation that's pending in California while the appellate court hears the motion that it filed to push those cases into arbitration. I mean, talk about a technical case or a procedural case. Why did the court take a case like this? It seems like it's limited. Well, this is an interesting case because it comes up quite a bit, not just in the crypto industry, but in many other industries such as banking and and retail. And I think the big reason the court took the case is because there's a very deep split among the appellate courts, uh, the federal appellate courts, as to how they come out on this question. And what happened was is that this was a consolidated appeal at the Supreme Court. They heard two cases that were filed as class actions, and the lead plaintiffs in both cases had signed user agreements with Coinbase, which said that any disputes would be heard in arbitration. So even though they had those agreements in place for a variety of reasons, the district court denied Coinbase's motion to compel arbitration, and Coinbase immediately appealed that decision. And the question is whether or not the court has to stay the case in court pending the time that the appellate court is hearing Coinbase's appeal. And that's a question that's divided the appellate courts in this country. Do most companies have arbitration clauses in their user agreements? Yes, these are pretty universal among financial services companies and crypto-related businesses. And the the purpose of the arbitration clause is to put these cases into a forum that's supposed to be less expensive than court litigation, uh, less burdensome and quicker. And what Coinbase's argument is, is that even though they have a right to appeal uh, the denial of their motion, if the case is not stayed and the case goes forward in the court while the appeal is pending, Coinbase is saying they, they really lose the benefit of these arbitration clauses because now they're forced to incur expenses and they're forced to litigate maybe for a full year while their appeal is pending. And if they ultimately win the appeal and the case goes to arbitration, well, you know, the money is already spent on attorney's fees and discovery and so forth. So it's really frustrating the intent of the arbitration clause, according to Coinbase's argument. Sounds like a good argument. What's the argument of the plaintiffs? 
Well, the plaintiffs are arguing, uh, based on the text of the Federal Arbitration Act, which is the statute that governs the appeals, and it gives Coinbase the right to this immediate appeal. And in that statute, Congress did not give an automatic stay to a defendant that's appealing the case. And traditionally, when there's no statute, the appellate court has discretion. And the plaintiffs are saying that this case is really no different than any other case, that the appellate court should really retain the discretion on whether to stay the case or whether to allow the case to proceed in court. And because it's not specifically set out in the statute as to whether an automatic stay should be granted or not, the plaintiffs here, the lawyers that are representing the the account holders, are saying to the Supreme Court, you know, you don't need to change anything. You should just keep it the way it is and let the court have discretion. And Coinbase says, well, but in practice, you know, the appellate courts, they don't stay these cases, and it's having a very detrimental effect on them. Under Coinbase's argument, would the appellate courts have to consider every time there's uh, denial of an arbitration clause, the federal courts would have to consider whether or not to, to stay the action below? Yeah, the question here is whether or not the appellate courts will have discretion uh, to stay the case or whether there would be an automatic stay that is mandatory any time a defendant makes an appeal to the federal appellate court. So Coinbase is saying that there should be no discretion, that as soon as they file their notice of appeal, the case in the trial court should be stayed pending a resolution of that appeal, because otherwise it would be you know, too expensive and too time-consuming to litigate that. And the plaintiffs are saying, no, you know, under established practice, courts have discretion on whether or not to stay the case. And the plaintiffs want to keep the general rule in place. And, and Coinbase wants to essentially create a special rule that's based on the statute that says that the stay is not discretionary and that it's mandatory that it be stayed. So, Bob, there would be less litigation at the appellate level if there was just a general rule that it stayed. Yes, absolutely. And that's one of Coinbase's arguments is that there needs to be more clarity in this area because the whole purpose of arbitration clauses and the purpose of the statute that relates to arbitration is that there's a, there's a public policy in favor of cheaper and more efficient ways to handle disputes in arbitration. And that purpose is being frustrated because there's no clear rule. It's really just up to the discretion of the court in terms of whether to allow a court case to go forward or not during the pendency of the appeal. And Coinbase is arguing that this creates a tremendous amount of pressure on them to settle cases, because if the case is going to go forward in the district court pending the appeal, then Coinbase doesn't want to spend the money on attorney's fees and and other cost to try to push this into arbitration, you know, in a year or two down the road. And Coinbase is saying that due to these financial pressures, they have a big incentive to settle and to forego their rights to arbitration. So what did you hear from the justices? What were their areas of questioning? Well, the justices were pretty evenly divided, I would say. They were really seeing both sides of the coin here. Some of the justices were very concerned about the financial pressures on Coinbase and other defendants to settle cases if there's a threat that the underlying court case could go forward. But other judges were more in line with the plaintiffs here and the users who were saying that, well, there's no specific statute that authorizes an automatic stay, and this is more or less a policy question. And if Congress wanted to enact a statute that had an automatic stay, they, they would have done so. And in fact, they 
did so in other instances, but the Congress didn't do so here. So there was competing concerns on both sides. And the problem is that Congress was silent when it passed the statute to say whether or not there should be a stay that was automatically granted or not. Was the split among the justices down ideological lines or not? Yes, it was. Um, The more conservative wing of the Supreme Court was much more concerned about the the burdensomeness on businesses like Coinbase and having to, to litigate these types of cases while their appeal was pending. And the more liberal wing of the court was concerned about the users and the consumers and how that would play out. And one of the big concerns that the more liberal wing of the court had was that if they ruled in favor of Coinbase and said there was an automatic stay of the district court litigation, then that creates incentive on the plaintiffs to want to settle because now, you know, the case is going to go forward in arbitration and then the arbitrator has to decide whether or not that arbitration is the appropriate forum. And the point was made that there's tremendous uh, changes occurring every day in the crypto industry. Companies are going uh, bankrupt, very volatile. And they said ruling in favor of Coinbase would uh, be detrimental to to the plaintiffs and their right to have some speedy hearing on on their case. The Supreme Court is usually in favor of arbitration. So if it proceeds along the lines it usually has, what does that indicate? What would their decision be here? Yes, there's a strong preference in federal court practice to put cases into arbitration if there is a valid basis for for doing so, or even an arguably valid basis for doing so. The courts are are really uh, overburdened at this point. Um, There's a lot of cases that they have to get through. So oftentimes, um, courts will look for ways to put cases into arbitration to reduce that burden. And and they often cite to the congressional intent to that effect as well as, as a way to try to reduce expenses and attorney's fees and these types of disputes. You know, the interesting and somewhat ironic thing here, too, is that the conservative wing of the court, which is usually focused very much on the text of statutory interpretation and deferring to Congress, would, under that type of analysis, would say, well, the statute doesn't specifically provide for an automatic stay, so we as a court cannot read that into the statute. We, we have to go with what Congress said, and they didn't say anything here. But they really didn't play out that way in the oral arguments where the conservative wing was more concerned about the, the litigation burdens and the attorney's fees on businesses than they were with the more strict uh, textual analysis of the statute. So does it sound as if Coinbase is on the winning side of this? Well, it, it, it's hard to say, but I do think that overall the court was leaning in Coinbase's favor due to the public policy that's reflected in, in the statute for arbitration, as well as the, the burdens that businesses like Coinbase would face in having to, to litigate, essentially, a district court and a trial court case while their appeal was pending. And, and the justices overall seem to be very concerned about that issue. So was there any question at all involving cryptocurrency itself? It, it really didn't come up. Um, the, the concept of cryptocurrency or any unique features of cryptocurrency here, other than to make the point that it was a very volatile industry and that there was some need for speedy resolutions of disputes, but that really wasn't unique to, to the crypto industry. Broadening the discussion here and speaking about higher stakes fights on crypto issues that may find their way to the court, 
Elliot Stein, Bloomberg Intelligence litigation analyst, thinks that the Ripple case is going to be one that's going to end up at the Supreme Court. So tell us a little about that case. Yeah, the the Ripple case is um, is really a fundamental case because it really gets to um, jurisdictional questions among regulators and who has the jurisdiction to regulate cryptocurrency in the absence of specific legislation by Congress. And in the Ripple case, um, the, the question is whether that particular cryptocurrency qualifies as a security for purposes of the federal securities laws. And there's uh, various motions that are pending with the court, and we're waiting for a decision right now in terms of which way the court will go. Um, if it rules in favor of the SEC, that's going to bring a lot of the crypto industry under the, the regulatory purview of the SEC. Um, but if it rules in favor of Ripple, it, it could really um, open up things to a less regulatory environment for crypto in the United States. Now, that case is awaiting a key ruling from a federal judge in New York. But Ripple's chief executive officer, Brad Garlinghouse, said the company will absolutely appeal should it lose the case. Quote, for legal eagles who are paying attention to tea leaves based upon cases that have gone to the Supreme Court, we are exceedingly optimistic about what that path looks like. Another issue that could hit the high court as soon as the nine-month term that starts in October is already at a federal appellate court in Washington. It's expected to rule in the coming months on the SEC's rejection of a proposed Bitcoin exchange-traded fund after approving a similar product based on Bitcoin futures. Yes, that's that's right. So there, there was a, another case that was recently um, heard by the Supreme Court in terms of whether or not the SEC was justified in rejecting the application of a, an ETF provider who wanted to uh, create an ETF based on the spot prices of Bitcoin. And the SEC said, well, that, that's an unregulated market and there's too much of a risk of fraud and we're not going to approve this type of ETF. And the ETF appealed because it said, well, the SEC has approved other um, types of ETFs based on Bitcoins, uh, specifically Bitcoin futures, and there was really no um, substantive distinction between the two, um, which the SEC disagrees on. I mean, this current Supreme Court, the Roberts Court, in its current formation, seems usually in favor of limiting regulatory agencies' power. So the SEC, yeah. if it goes before this Supreme Court usually faces an uphill battle. Yes, the, this, this current Supreme Court has not been very friendly territory um, to the SEC, and, and it hasn't been for, for a number of years. Um, the, the court has um, struck down various SEC rules and, and cases over the years and has shown a really high level of concern that the SEC is, is overreaching in terms of their um, jurisdictional arguments and trying to bring things into the, under their purview that really are not authorized um, by, by Congress or by statute. And um, a lot of uh, people who are following this industry, a lot of attorneys and regulators, are, are really looking to see how some of these cases uh, play out as the SEC tries to take on a more expansive role over the crypto industry and people and companies push back and say that the SEC doesn't have any congressional authority 
uh, to do that, and, and we need Congress to act in order for the SEC to, to have that authority. We shall see what happens. Keep our eye on the court. Thanks so much, Bob. That's securities law expert Robert Heim, a partner at Tartar, Krinsky, and Drogan. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.